Acting President Vladimir Putin announces the final seizure on Sunday the 6th of February 2000 of the separatist capital Grozny. On the ground, a handful of doctors try to evacuate the injured fighters who did not manage to escape. The city, symbolising Chechnya's struggle for independence, has fallen, but no political solution to the war is yet in sight. Russian soldiers are hunting for any injured Chechen still surviving amongst the ruins of Grozny, now abandoned by the fighters. The article in the French newspaper Le Monde continues. NGOs are now concerned about the fate of refugees, who are being more or less forced to return to the liberated territories. No more heed is being paid to the Geneva Conventions protecting medical personnel, journalists and civilians than to that prohibiting torture or arms of mass destruction. Moscow claims it has been unable to identify any Chechen representatives to take part in the process of re-establishing federal order, which, according to the Kremlin, is preventing any kind of political solution from being found. It's February 2000. MSF and other humanitarian organisations are being blocked from entering Grozny. The Russian Federation's authorities say they need to clear mines first, but some suspect them of laying new mines. With no international staff permanently on the ground, MSF is struggling to speak out about the war. There was a lot of info about Chechnya and the violations of humanitarian law all over the newspapers. There were organisations that were doing advocacy based on what was coming out of Chechnya, like Human Rights Watch. We didn't think that our additional voice, especially without a presence, would change things that much. This second war is proving to be more violent and more devastating for Chechnya than the first, as this MSF staff member from the Caucasus remembers when interviewed a few years later. Their words have been voiced up. During the first war, we were working in different hospitals in Grozny, then Starotagi and Chateau. During the second war, there was no room for that because they were bombing all over the place. You could have cases where you were supposed to go to the patient's house and do the operation. You'd go from house to house and provide assistance like that. If the person happened to be wounded or didn't want to take part or cannot take part in the hostilities anymore, according to all humanitarian laws, he has a right to receive medical assistance. But in those days, they could easily shoot you down just for providing assistance to one of the sites. In February 2000, the Chechen president, Aslan Masadov, declares a guerrilla war against the Russian forces from the mountains of Chechnya. For MSF, the dilemma is how to raise awareness about the crisis when they have no access to the country. Should MSF moderate its public speaking out on the North Caucasus so as not to jeopardise its activities elsewhere in the Russian Federation? In Russia, public opinion is mostly in favour of the war in Chechnya. Those who are against it, like members of human rights organisations and some of the independent media, are censured or punished. While in the rest of the world, there's little media coverage on the conflict and therefore not enough public pressure on governments to take a stand against the Russians' conduct of war. So, when accusations of espionage are regularly levied against the organisation in the Russian media, should the organisation ignore or address them? And, as frustration over getting international employees on the ground mounts, should individual staff members be risking their and their colleagues' lives to bring aid to Chechnya? Today, 
we say enough. Even war has rules. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There will be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. This is Speaking Out, War Crimes and the Politics of Terror in Chechnya, 1994-2004, a podcast by MSF. I'm Nick Owen. Episode 4, A Cautious Reentry to Chechnya. At the end of February 2000, the different MSF sections working on Chechnya meet to share their approaches on how to communicate on the crisis. While the Dutch section wants to let the harrowing description of the humanitarian situation speak for itself, the French section wants to make a public appeal to the political world to take a firmer stance on the humanitarian dimension of this conflict. MSF Belgian programme manager speaks of the difficulties of working in Ingushetia and getting the word out on the crisis taking place in the North Caucasus when interviewed by the Belgian daily La Dernière Heure. There's no infrastructure, of course, but we're used to that. However, we've rarely seen a criminal organisation like it, revolving around the kidnapping of Westerners. The official refugee camps are no longer big enough. A huge number of refugees are living in small communities in unused factories or warehouses. These are the people we are trying to get aid to. Like the other NGOs in the field, MSF has gathered testimony from refugees who have suffered ill treatment in the Russian camps. We have heard talk of torture, or at the very least ill treatment, but as we can't verify these claims, we can only confirm that there are reports of this. The longer it goes on, the more reports we hear, but we need to be on site to assess the situation. We mustn't delude ourselves. This is a war, and there are no holds barred. When the first aid convoy from the UN High Commissioner for Refugees finally reaches Grozny in early March, aid workers find people starving and without medical care or shelter in a decimated city. Throughout February and March 2000, MSF teams find themselves fighting rumours in the Russian press about their neutrality in the conflict. On the 29th of February, the Russian Justice Minister declares that their forces aren't preventing the Red Cross and MSF from transporting medicine to the Chechen separatist fighters in the mountains. A Russian TV station interprets the statement as an accusation that MSF is delivering medicines to separatist fighters. They invite MSF to come on air to explain its actions, but the teams refuse, refuting the claim and instead taking measures to make sure local press is better acquainted with MSF's activities. Just three days later, the commander of the Russian forces in Chechnya further undermines the organisation's credibility by going on television to say that, quote, MSF has interests that are harmful to the Russian state. He also claims that intelligence services worked under the MSF colours. Opinion is divided over what response to give to the Russian statements. MSF Holland regional advisor Kenny Gluck. His words have been voiced up. General Shimanov went on television. He was the commander in general of the Western Group of Forces in Chechnya. It was a field interview. He was standing somewhere in the Caucasus. A journalist stuck a mic in his face and he said that the OSCE and MSF are spies and enemies of Russia. 
There were differences between MSF Paris and MSF Amsterdam. We felt that we should give an information letter to the Ministry of Defence and that's it. MSF France wanted to do a much larger statement and demand a retraction and so on. We said any advocacy and gathering of eyewitness statements should be about the people in Chechnya. It should not be about MSF. It seemed to us to be a distraction. We were going to ruin our chances of doing eyewitness statements and ruin our chances to do work by getting into a public fight as if we were offended because he called us a bad name. That was not the right issue. I think MSF France felt that we could not let these things pass. When someone throws down a glove, you have to pick it up or else you're just showing that you're afraid of them. MSF France Director of Operations Jean-Hervé Bradol. His words have been voiced up. Shamanov accuses us on state television of trying to act against Russian interests. The other sections don't want to react to this. I don't want to let these accusations go unanswered. I don't think sticking our heads in the sand will make us any safer. It would be better to show our colours, including in our public messages, even if they upset some people. Given the way the Secret Services see us, there's no point in trying to keep a low profile. We might as well be clearly identified as an opponent to what they are doing. If they attack us publicly, we absolutely must react. Then, if anything happens to us, it'll be important to show that we already had problems with them. After discussions, a letter is sent to the Russian Federation's ambassador to the United Nations on behalf of the whole MSF movement. The letter labels the statements made by General Shamanov as slander that could jeopardise international relief organisations' ability to work in the Caucasus. Days later, there are fresh accusations. The official Russian press office, Itar Tass, claims the MSF office in northern Georgia was opened as a base for transporting humanitarian materials and arms to Chechen fighters. In reality, they're treating wounded people wherever they come from. At the beginning of April, the United Nations and Russia pass an agreement on the humanitarian operations in Ingushetia and Chechnya. Part of the deal imposes armed escorts on all operations in these two countries. MSF refuses these escorts on the basis that they won't be seen to be independent and the Chechen soldiers won't be able to tell the difference between the NGOs and the Russians. As a result, international staff still aren't going into either country, but some of the sections start running what's called remote-controlled teams in Ingushetia. This means local Caucasus staff members are trained and managed from a distance by international teams based in the wider region. MSF Belgium set up a centre in Ingushetia, staffed by Chechens. Jean-Christophe Dolle is coordinator of MSF Belgium's North Caucasus project. At that time, we had the tuberculosis project in Siberian prisons and the homeless project in Moscow. So the Ingushetia project was managed more or less directly from Brussels by both the regular group and a task force made up of the doctor and logistician who helped carry out the exploratory mission. So it was partly managed like an emergency project, with regular contacts with head office once or twice a day, although it wasn't really an emergency anymore. The mobile clinics were launched in December and operated throughout 2000, mainly in the Margabek region in the northeast of Ingushetia. We set up in existing health centres or in the displaced persons camps and went in every day to hold consultations. Then in March or April, quite early on, we got minibuses fitted out as gynaecological examination rooms 
and concentrated on care for women and the distribution of non-food products. But running these remote-controlled teams for any length of time comes with its own problems. Jean-Christophe again. On the 26th of April, we held a project committee meeting in Brussels and again suggested providing the same type of assistance in Chechnya as in Ingushetia. In other words, essential provisions and mobile clinics with the focus on women. A team based in Nazaran could do the round trip to Chechnya and back every day. The challenge was trying to identify an English team along the same lines as the current Chechen team in Ingushetia, then replacing this Chechen team and allowing it eventually to set up in Grozny and get a project off the ground. But in the end, no decision was taken. In fact, the Chechen team based in Ingushetia had lost touch with its contacts in Chechnya. Its members had all sorts of good reasons for not wanting to be replaced in Ingushetia. They said, the English are not reliable, the project is growing and so we need all our resources here before attempting to start a second project. After just a few months, the remote control situation had turned around. Those being remote controlled weren't the ones we thought. I'm now sure that the lifespan of this kind of project can't be any longer than six to nine months maximum. During the first three, four, five, six months, there might be some added value in wanting to work by remote control, because we come with all our MSF experience. But rapidly getting out of touch with what's really going on, the lack of evaluation, not being able to apply the famous operational space triangle, all start to take their toll. It's the local team that guides us in the right or wrong direction. The Swiss section opens a mission in Dagestan with the aim of eventually beginning work just over the border in eastern Chechnya. The words of MSF Switzerland's Director of Operations have been voiced up. We began to take an interest in Dagestan in 2000, with an initial exploratory mission out of Azerbaijan for establishing contacts. There were no international organisations at all in Dagestan because of a spate of kidnappings. From the media and contacts we'd made, we thought that the east of Chechnya could be an interesting possibility over the long term. The aim wasn't to get into Chechnya straight away, but to take it slowly, step by step, getting to know the contexts from Dagestan and trying to get ourselves accepted by working on the border with Chechnya. The humanitarian situation was nothing like an Ingushetia. We began with a programme on the Chechen border that we ran out of Moscow and Mahachkala, the capital of Dagestan. The programme expanded and we began working in the health centres along the Chechen border. Nothing very spectacular, but providing basic care in areas that were otherwise overlooked. This enabled us to make contact with a number of Chechens. As far as security went, we had quite a strict policy. We never left people there for long. They were sent back to Moscow rapidly. We had two heads of mission who took over from each other. For us, the coordinator was essential to the project's success, so we couldn't and didn't want to run them by remote control through the coordination team in Moscow. We didn't want to take the risk. The French section remains undecided about the level of risk acceptable for working in the Caucasus. In April, a programme providing basic support to a hospital in the capital of Ingushetia is opened. Dr. Eric Comte is the first field coordinator for MSF France there. Nazran is only a small town. We were living in a hotel, guarded by members of the militia, and were under orders to stay there all day and inform them of our appointments. We were only allowed out to the hospital 500 metres away in an armoured car. 
We were bored and could see that it was in the camps that things were really happening. Then we started going to Chechnya, to Sionovodsk, the village just over the border. At first it was really just to say that we'd been. Then the program manager started saying, you've got to go to Grozny, you've really got to. That was when the head of Grozny Maternity Hospital came knocking on our door in Ingushetia to ask for our help. So in September, when I left the mission, we had two programs in Chechnya, Sionovodsk and Grozny Maternity Hospital. Steve Cornish takes over from Eric as Ingushetia Field Coordinator in September 2000. He credits Eric as the one who pushed headquarters in Paris to open the two programmes on Chechen soil through going there without authorization and reporting back what he'd seen and done there to the team. Steve soon reopens the programme in Chatoy, in the south of Chechnya. So I was going in and out of Chechnya. I went in for periods of several days uh, to a little more than a week at a time and then would go back to Ingushetia for r and We had limited communication uh, means. We couldn't have uh, radios and uh, international phones with us, given the checkpoints. Um, We would go in as a troika, an interpreter, a driver, and myself. Um, The driver had worked for MSF during the first war. The interpreter uh, was working with us in Pankisi Valley a few months prior. Uh, And in MSF, we were taking a number of risks uh, just to be on the ground, but we couldn't work to the degree that we wanted to, as that was seen as uh, quite risky by the desk back in Paris. Uh, In the field, we had made a plan to help 10,000 refugees before winter's end, and the team was really motivated by that. Uh, But we did meet some resistance and some hesitation. Uh, Paris thought uh, opening up and doing a big operation would create too much risk, whereas we in the field felt that we were taking risk and would have more risk if we weren't seen to be acting and responding to the needs. In the end, uh, we were fortunate. We were able to convince the desk in Paris uh, to come together as a staff team to carry out uh, the assistance. Uh, The assistance was uh, largely towards refugees who were living in uh, trains on the train track and in uh, villages inside Chechnya. And uh, we were able to do the winterization activities, bring uh, non-food items and supplies. And uh, we really made a big push as a staff team and and we're very pleased that we were able to complete the objective uh, before winter's end. Jean-Hervé Bradol becomes president of MSF France in May 2000. Again, his words have been voiced up. Looking back, some of the things I did send shivers down my spine. If I had volunteers, I was ready to take risks to get operations moving again. When you're in that kind of mood, it's difficult keeping things in perspective, and sometimes the right motivations get mixed up with the wrong ones. Steve Cornish and I were quite worked up. Denis Gouzer, who was the programme manager, was a bit more cautious than us. If Steve didn't go into Chechnya to set up an operation any sooner than he did, I think it's because Denis stopped him. Otherwise he'd have gone in. Denis thought it was too dangerous at that point, and he was right. Steve and me, we were both ready to go in ourselves. We saw the danger as relative, as we weren't putting anyone at risk who didn't know what they were doing. We were, perhaps, a bit too carried away, and I'm not sorry Denis was there to calm us down a bit. Next time. The various MSF sections finally all agree on a coordinated media strategy for getting news out of Chechnya and into the press, in particular the Russian media. 
It was a little bit more difficult because journalists were so scared to go into Chechnya. So we provided a kind of legitimacy of the image by having foreigners who would speak about it. Whereas so many of the journalists had never been inside. Even the Human Rights Watch people, the foreigners, had never been inside. It was all done with Russians and, and Chechens. And sadly, in the Western press, having a foreigner speak about it has more weight than having a local person. But the eyewitness accounts coming out of the war zone are harrowing, and there's debate again over how to gather these testimonies and just who should be telling these stories. This MSF Speaking Out podcast is based on an original MSF case study called War Crimes and Politics of Terror in Chechnya, 1994-2004. It's written by Lawrence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out case study series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is written, produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Interviews are recorded by Lucy Dearlove. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet, and Rebecca Golden Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. Extracts are read by Didi Bellos and Matthew Wade. The voiceovers are by Michael Barrett, Christopher Bockman, Kevin Halliwell, Clive Hayward, Chris Kellum, and Richard Westgate. The music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Dr. Eric Comte, Steve Cornish, and Jean-Christophe Dolé. To read the full case study and discover others, please go to our website, msf.org slash speaking out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>